it's uh, less than 3% of the VC uh, capital invested go to female-led companies. So the gender gap, it's abysmal. everyone. Welcome back to Going Deeper there in Watson. My guest today, Gabriela Isturis, is a multi-time successful B2B SaaS founder. She started two different software companies focused on serving the legal profession, and both of them ended up being acquired. She is now doing angel and venture investing. And in this conversation, we talk about the long winding road that she took to both of those successes, what she's learned about building teams, and the impact that she now aspires to have as an investor and advisor to startups trying to do something similar. She has a fantastic energy. I was so grateful that she spent some time to talk with us. And I hope that you have a bunch of takeaways from this conversation. I know I did. Here is Gabby Isthuris. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Gabby, thanks for coming on the podcast. I am so excited to be talking with you. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. I'm super excited to. So I am always fascinated by, I'm fascinated by success. I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs, uh, but in particular, uh, SaaS entrepreneurs who've actually built the company, you know, figured out the kind of underlying model because all these different businesses, whether, you know, maybe it's a wholesale company, they need to manage their inventory because they're in retail or there's all these different businesses out there. SaaS, successful SaaS founders are an interesting breed to me. So I would love to kind of kick things off before we get into the two companies that you've successfully built and sold. What just attracted you to the SaaS business model generally, and how did you get a toehold into a, a vertical that is, is not the easiest thing to start? It's usually requires some capital and some expertise. Like, tell me about the kind of genesis just to this is the direction that I want to take my business career. Yes, uh, actually, that's a, that's an awesome question to get it started, Aaron. So, uh, why SaaS? Right, I got into. Uh, I'm a software engineer. So um, I have a technical uh, background and um, we started out in the beginnings of SaaS when it was even called SaaS. It was called Application Service Provider and uh, that was uh, by the time that Salesforce was putting SaaS you know, in the map. So, but I mean, we truly believe that that was the model super early on that was going to rule. And so we built for law firms the first SaaS model. I win. Again, wasn't even called SaaS. And so why legal? I started working for a law firm, the one of the largest uh, insurance defense in the country. And they had a big problem. They didn't know how to fix the problem of sending bills electronically. This is around 2000, uh, 2001. So I created internally an application for the firm, um, you know, to be able to submit. And it, it was extremely complex. Uh, so I created that for the firm. I believe that it was an opportunity. Nobody was doing that um, at a time. And uh, I partnered, uh, you know, with my business partner and we decided to take this commercially. So that's how I really got into legal. You know, pretty much uh, I stumbled upon that, but 
you know, we found this uh, huge opportunity uh, in the market. And uh, yeah, and we uh, built it out. I mean, it wasn't easy by any means, uh, but uh, that, that, that ga- it gave us uh, the foothold in the legal tech. So one of the things that, that just jumps out is you spent, you know, nine years in the law firm, like running the IT internally. So you had an intimate view at their problems, at their challenges. And amongst the, you know, the wide range of industries that, you know, a, a software could be applied to, the legal industry is pretty darn big, but it's also, you know, very just almost conservative by nature. They need every, you know, T crossed, I dotted, but by just like the kind of nature and sensibility of their profession. So take me through like in those early um, stages of commercialization and making this into your, your first business, e-billing hub that you ended up selling. Take me through just how you even went about selling this. And you know, was it an easy sale? Was it a hard sale? What did that look like? Yeah. So even before I start talking about, you know, how we went to market, it is an industry that is uh, extremely conservative. And uh, I mean, it's, they, they kind of sit into the lager kind of thing. And, and not only that, I mean, they're very risk averse and, uh, and it's a heavily male dominated industry. So uh, it wasn't too easy, but, um, but yes, um, a little bit of how that played out. Um, I went to uh, the managing partner of the firm. I came uh, with the idea, why don't we take this commercial? And uh, they didn't take me seriously. So they said, yeah, just go do what you want as long as you don't leave the firm, right? So basically they said, yeah, just go and build your thing, right? Keep busy, but, uh, you know, we, don't, we want you to stay, right? So, so that was a little bit, okay, uh, I'll do it. They had some equity uh, in, the, in the new spin-off. And um, so, yeah, uh, it was uh, pretty much... Uh, uh, zero confident that this was going to become, uh, you know, what it is today, which is the leader in e-billing for law firms and even professional services. So um, in terms of the go-to-market, I love that question because remember, we're talking about 2000, 2002, right? The market was not ready for SaaS. Why? Because uh, your data needed to get off-premise, in uh, being a law firm, they were very protected. You know, they had, you know, all these uh, liabilities about privacy content. So um, we did something that what we call missionary selling, which is pretty much uh, explaining we needed to educate the market, what an application service provider, what SaaS uh, was, right? Then we needed to uh, get some early adopters that really believe that this was going to be the future. And we needed to uh, architect a platform, uh, you know, that was uh, um, uh, super secure because uh, remember you're sending all confidential billing information back and forth. And so I would imagine if that kind of initial law firm, like you, I believe you mentioned had an equity stake in what ended up getting spun out to be commercialized, was happy to kind of be the the flag bearer of we use this we're a happy customer and the social kind of cue that hey i mean it's good enough for them it at least might be good for us we can at least kind of take the meeting was probably a big beachhead it it, it was but uh it was not as uh you know glamorous 
you know, or or as effective as uh, we expected. Of course, right? We already have the experience. We already proved in the proof that in one of the largest uh, insurance defense firms. Uh, but we needed to go and find another ten uh, beachheads. So one, of course, it opened us to get other early adopters. But and, and yeah, we got all the all the experience and part of what we did. If uh, our solution works for, I mean, this large firm, uh, chances are that it's going to work for pretty much every other. But we needed to find additional proof beyond the beachhead that we developed the solution uh, for. Make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, the landscape, like, like you said, those are the early days of Salesforce. Even by the time you ended up selling it to Thomson Reuters, um, the, there'd been a pretty seismic shift in the marketplace just in terms of, yeah, we don't need every single thing to be on-prem. We don't need every single thing to be, you know, a custom-built software. There, is, there probably was a, a growing sensibility for these types of, you know, either applications or, or SaaS as, as they're now commonly called. Can you just talk a little bit about that transition from your vantage point interacting with these buyers and how that shift even looked from you know, 2003, 2004 to 2010. Yeah, and uh, I think something that uh, we, we understood and did really well was highlight the value that they will get you know, over the concerns over uh, security, not on-prem, cloud, which was a, a, a new concept. So basically, uh, one of the advantages of our deployment in our solution, you know, they could get up and running in one day, something that uh, not having our solution could have taken a couple of months. So they were able to kind of like a, a favor the ease of use and the ability to get the bills immediately and onboard clients, uh, they were able to onboard a client in a matter of minutes, something that it was uh, unprecedented. So I think uh, what we did was uh, really focus on the value and uh, that helped us to overcome the, the objections about security and infrastructure. So, so why sell? Did you have investors that needed liquidity? Was you just a gobsmack type of offer? Were you sick of it and just needed a break? Like, what? T- take me through the psychology of you know building something where you, you th- even think about like you know billing software or the appeal of B two B SaaS generally is these really high retention rates with increasingly strong margins as you get more customers. That's the whole appeal yep. is, you know, someone puts in some core function, they keep paying for it every single year. And as that software gets deployed to more people, the margins get juicier and juicier. So take me through where you were and, and what was kind of the catalyst for that choice. Yeah, and I think um, for uh, all the entrepreneurs that are uh, listening, these are uh, one of the things that you learn as you go. When we transitioned, when we spun off uh, from the law firm, one partner uh, of the firm, you know, kind of like the traded uh, some debt over the equity position at Evelyn Hub. And our goals uh, were different. So basically, he wanted a liquidity event uh, to happen before we wanted. And basically, you know, for some reason, we pretty much agree that um, we needed to sell. So 
kind of like a, the long story short, it's uh, um, at some point uh, we lost the majority of the business and we, we, we have to do, take actions that were not our first choice. Gotcha. So then that kind of Very helps, allu- it, it kind of illuminates um, the next move. So then, you know, some people, they sell the business and they just go, they sip daiquiris and mojitos somewhere. Um, there was probably a little bit of this, you know, there, we left meat on the bone here from an opportunity totally. standpoint. And so what I mean, I'm, this is, this is my energy. I, I don't know if it'll always be my energy, but you literally jumped right into another company, Belfield Systems. Um, can you maybe just talk a little bit about what the, the energy was at that point in time, what the opportunity was? Cause there's also, you know, new modern tools and technologies. The, the, the technology landscape has changed in that decade since founding. You probably, you know, say we can come to this with an even more modern solution and maybe go even faster. Yeah. And after Thomson Reuters uh, acquire e-billing hub, so we kind of like uh, took a little bit of a year to think what we could do. Uh, we had, uh, of course, a non-compete, and we couldn't get into the e-billing, but we knew how to build uh, amazing uh, SaaS uh, platforms. Uh, we understood the industry really well, and we also uh, had a name. So uh, we decided that uh, let's build something in the niche that we know. Uh, we know the problems. And uh, when we started Belfield, so basically we started Belfield not having 100% clear of what we were going to build. So uh, we started talking to lawyers, we started talking to law firms, and in the iPad was the new uh, shiny object back in the day. So law firms were buying iPads for the lawyers. Uh, you know, they were super excited. You will see lawyers, I mean, carrying their iPad. Um, and at that point, there was no one solution uh, for the lawyers to enter their time from a mobile device. Incredible. Yeah. So we realized, well, attorneys, you know, law firms depend on the revenue that is built uh, through these uh, time tracking um, systems that they have on premise. So how about we give the lawyers the ability to enter time anywhere they are uh, through their mobile devices. So we created our first version for the iPad. And from there, I mean, we evolved to, you know, iPhone, Android to become a full time tracking platform in compliance. So that's a little bit of how we started. We evolved, but uh, we always knew that we wanted to dominate the time tracking space since we started. Yeah. So, so there's so many guests that we've had, they kind of figure out an arena where they just, they know more than the competition. They maybe already have the relationships, whether it's Jason Wolf and gift cards or anyone in whatever kind of little niche that they occupy law isn't a particularly small niche, but it's, it's a specific niche. And what always fascinating to me, like you said, you didn't quite have the product figured out yet. You knew there was an opportunity and you knew you had the team. And I want to touch on that for a second. Can you talk about the folks that you brought with you from the first business to the next business where, you know, to some degree, was it the, the same team saddling up to ride? Maybe not every single player is the same, but th- there's probably a couple kind of core people. You're like, we've done this before. We have the chemistry. We complement each other and let's go. Yeah, so uh, my partner at uh, Evelyn Hub uh, ended up to be my husband. 
So, you know, not only we were business partners, but we also were a couple. So uh, we have no other choice to move to yeah. the next venture. <laughs> yeah, there'd be uh, some hard feelings if you didn't bring them along to the new business. <laughs> right. <laughs> in the, in the, in, in, but, but in terms of uh, bringing people, there were some, um, you know, with a non-compete, non-solicitation. Uh, so we needed to be uh, very careful. So, uh, but I mean, we knew uh, the, the ecosystem, but we pretty much needed to start building a team uh, from scratch. You know, a couple of years after, after we didn't have uh, the non-solicitation, non-compete, uh, we were able to recruit, uh, to recruit some of the amazing um you know, developers and technical staff, and they uh, follow us in the second company. Makes sense. Because one of the things, you know, the, the further I go, the more I realize um, it's, like, it's like a basic sales principle, right? It's really, really hard to get a customer, the first sale from someone. It's way easier to get a repeat purchase. It's way easier to get like the second year's subscription payment. But the same is true with talent. It's really, really hard to have someone start from a dead stop and decide, yes, I want to work with you. Let's go. If you have the years of being their manager, being a team member with them, they know, you know, how you are as a person and it beyond your reputation, just what your qualities are. Then the, the pitch to say, Hey, let's go do this over here is, is way easier. Once all the legal kind of non-competes and stuff have been respected. Yeah, and, that, and that's beautiful. And that's exactly how it is, Aaron, because then uh, we went back to the people that we knew and they will uh, bring their people that, that they knew. And pretty much as we grew up until kind of like uh, three years before we sold, uh, 80% of our employees, uh, we had one degree of connection. So, you know, our employees were our best recruiters. Incredible. So the second time you sold, um, I know you've, you've talked a little bit about this on another podcast, so I don't want to rehash too much of it, but there's a specific decision of finding a, an investment banker, a consultant to actually go out and help solicit inquiries for the business. Because as you know, small as some industries can feel, the economy is large and you don't want to you know, leave a prospective stone unturned that might be the best partner from an acquisition standpoint when it is time to sell. So can you talk a little bit um, about how that works, but also like why on the second company, what was the catalyst this time to say, all right, let's time to you know, pass this off to another party? Yeah, um, at the beginning, I mean, we were growing uh, really fast. And what I wanted it was, uh, you know, get that continue to grow. Um, we grew to a point that I felt like, um, you know, I was running out of a network, uh, right? Uh, even sometimes I, I even doubt, you know, can I take myself, the company to the next step? So I started kind of like an exercise of uh, equity growth. So um, we got um, the way that this started and uh, probably, um, you know, other startups and entrepreneurs go through this. Uh, we wanted to do it ourselves. So uh, we, you know, we got, we talked to some uh, private equities with a lot of success, but we were managing pretty much everything, not knowing what we didn't know. So uh, luckily we decided, you know, we got three uh, LOIs when we were doing it ourselves, we didn't even know, you know, exactly how, whether those deals were well constructed, you know, what were the liabilities, even though that we were working with our lawyers. So we decided, you know, we're, we're not going to 
we're not going to do a transaction right now. So we waited and we knew because we were growing. I mean, we didn't have any urge to do uh, much. Actually, if we waited a little bit longer, uh, the evaluation was going to be even higher. So, um, you know. You had all the leverage in that scenario. Yes. And, and I mean, we were cash flow positive. I mean, we had an EBITDA of about 28, 30%. So, I mean, it's not like we were strapped for cash. But then, you know, we decided let's hire someone that understands how this is done because it is extremely time consuming. So I wanted someone to help me to run the process because I needed to continue, you know, to run the business. I needed to continue getting the revenue in, right? So, and I think it was uh, one of the, the, the best and smartest things that we did. It's kind of like a bring the investment bankers. They knew how to do it and they helped me immensely in the process, you know, in the, in the outreach. And we are talking about in another podcast, they really created kind of like a bidding again uh, for us, which, you know, in turn makes it a little bit more, you know, better for us. It's, it's good to have options. It's good to have leverage. You can play them off one another, all that, all that fun stuff. Um, so I, I really, I'm excited. We got to this point in the conversation, which is the options that get opened up from starting to have that momentum and string of entrepreneurial successes. And, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll, on the show, we'll talk to all sorts of different, all sorts of different uh, people in different careers and industries. And some of the inbound that I get, particularly from younger folks is, oh, I want to like, I want to go be a VC, or I want to go do this like very kind of glamorous headline grabbing activity. And what I'll always just kind of caution to say is, you know, before you start a business, it's great to actually like work in that arena to some degree. And, you know, your story illustrates that you were in a law firm and then you were able to kind of spin out and create your own thing. And then if you're going to go and be a VC and be allocating capital and picking winners when it comes to these entrepreneurial endeavors, it helps to have actually witnessed and seen uh, or been a part of a few of those entrepreneurial successes before you might, you know, have the finely honed filter to go pick those winners. Um, and so it, it seems like, you know, what I'm going to start doing now is just pointing people at Gabby and, and shutting my mouth so that you can kind of give that as an example. But you're now, you know, following this exact trajectory that I've kind of, you know, penciled around for, for other folks in the past, which is now the, the, there's, um, you know, a little nest egg from these successful sales. There is a lot of hard earned experience and wisdom from being in the trenches, building these businesses for the last two decades. And now you have the ability to sit as a, a really high leverage individual, not only with capital, but with that experience and wisdom to help other entrepreneurs who might be earlier in the journey. So talk a little bit about the vision for um, the kind of venture investing that you want to do and the specific structure that you're using to make that happen. Yeah, that's... Um... Excellent question. So um, again, I, I totally agree with you that uh, having what we call operator experience, I mean, it really brings uh, an amazing uh, perspective. So, you know, I recommend anybody who wants to get an investment in VC, get yourself some operating experience. And uh, so, yeah, after, you know, right now, so I don't know, Aaron, if uh, we're talking about what I'm doing right now after yeah. You know, we, we sold. So um, pretty much after I, I sold the, the, the company, I didn't know exactly uh, what I was going to do next. And it was a source of anxiety, uh, you know, being super busy to, you know, 
not being super busy, it's a, it's a void that I didn't know how I was going to feel. So uh, we decided that we really wanted to travel, but then COVID came and I couldn't travel. Um, so what happened was I started reaching out to the startup community. Uh, does anybody need any help? And um, in what happened was I started getting some kind of like a, a, a deal flow, uh, so to speak, to advise uh, uh, entrepreneurs. And uh, throughout that experience, I started doing angel investing. So in a little bit of uh, the, the how I got uh, into that, uh, of course, uh, now, you know, I, I have some, my financial freedom uh, is different, right? And, uh, but also I do want to uh, help entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, share the knowledge and not having to make every single mistake that I made. So yes, and advising and also angel investing. And then can you talk uh, about the fund? Because the fund Midwest dropped with, with Lindsay Campbell here in, in Pittsburgh and kind of focused geographically on investing. Your, your uh, uh, kind of growth out from that is a little bit of a broader view, but with other constraints. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really wanted to invest in the Midwest, uh, which is, uh, you know, where, I'm, where I've been living for the last uh, 25 years. And, but yeah, I believe in that. I invested in uh, Lindsay's fund as a, uh, as a member or as an LP. And I now I'm moving to create my own, my own fund. Nice. And focused on investing in women. Tell me about your experience trying to raise capital. Did you kind of run into those barriers associated with a female entrepreneur trying to raise capital? You, you mentioned your husband was, uh, was a partner with this. Is this kind of you know, from your experience of trying to build businesses like this? Yeah, so you've been when, uh, with my companies, with the two raising capital. So uh, we um, pretty much bootstrapped uh, the two companies. So the second company, we invested ourselves. So we didn't go through the traditional fundraising process. And even uh, throughout, uh, so we were doing good in cash. So we didn't feel the need up until, you know, when you know, the exit occurred that, you know, we were, you know, we wanted to do an equity round. But um, so I was approached by a team of amazing uh, female operators that they wanted to start fun just to help women. And uh, I mean, that's something that, you know, it's uh, very personal and, and close to me. A little bit of the stats, it's uh, less than 3% of the VC uh, capital invested go to female-led companies. So the gender gap, it's abysmal. So one of the goals that I want to achieve by being a general partner of a fund, which is called the Fund XX, you know, is try to close that gender gap. And Aaron, the gender gap is not just on the founder's uh, side, but it's also on the VC side, which is uh, heavily underrepresented. About 12% of the VC firms today, uh, less than 12%, they have female decision makers. So, you know, by not having female decision makers, we are leaving a little bit of a bias. And, uh, you know, and we are excluding an important part of the population, which is female, and uh, which is the 
Yeah. And also just missing opportunities, right? So, um, you know, the, the stitch fix story, my, my fiance works at stitch fix and, you know, the story there is the real struggle that, that Katrina Lake had raising capital for a company that eventually IPO would is wonderfully profitable where many of the other uh, retailers of a similar age are not, and is really, you know, a leader of the pack and it's, you know, it's, it's analyzation of data and supply chain and all these other really cool things. And, you know, uh, Benchmark, who's one of the blue chip VCs actually supported her and they're pretty darn happy with how that investment has gone. So I think I that really as, <laughs> as, um, as, as those stories continue to proliferate, I am optimistic that those numbers will start to change. Uh, it, it'll be a kind of piecemeal, slow, hopefully not slow, but uh, a kind of piecemeal step-by-step process. But it's intensely exciting to me to, to know that you're doing it here, that Lindsay's doing it here in, in Western Pennsylvania, and that it's happening all over the place. So uh, I'm, yeah. I'm fired up. Yeah. And in, in Aaron, even during and after the pandemic, we all know that female was the sector that was, uh, you know, heated worse. So, you know, um, I'm committed to do, you know, whatever we want to, you know, help uh, female entrepreneurs. Right on. Well, we're committed to continuing to support you in any way that we can and, and that mission as well. But we really do appreciate you spending some time on the show and, and telling me your story. Before we ask the standard last two questions for every interview, anything else you're hoping to share today, Gabby, that I just didn't give you the chance to? No, I think, um, you know, a little bit of uh, my journey. I met uh, incredible people along the way. And, you know, kind of like at this second phase, it's about to, you know, give back. And, uh, and I hope that more, I mean, founders, you know, with or without exits, you know, have the same sense of commitment to help the new generations. I believe it's our duty. Amen to that. Uh, well, if people want to learn more about you, follow along, or maybe they're interested in the kind of investing and coaching that you're doing, what digital coordinates can we provide for people if they'd like to learn more? I think uh, LinkedIn is the best way to find me. I mean, there are not that many Gabriella stories out there. So, uh, but yeah, I've LinkedIn and i um, super open. I love when people reach out to me. I like to help people when I can add value to them. So uh, yes, happy to connect with anybody. Beautiful. We'll link that in the show notes, goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every episode of the podcast is where you can find those links. Also in the podcast app, we're probably listening to this right now. And you're right about the not many people like having the name and that being an advantage. Uh, there's a country singer also named Aaron Watson, and he just beats me in every Google search. Every time people search Google, that's who they're finding. So don't don't take that lightly. That is a huge advantage to have a distinct name. I will. So uh, before I let you go, Gabby, I want to give you the mic one final time to have you issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Actionable personal challenge to the audience. I think um, read about stoicism. Um, Stoicism. mm -hmm. I got into that, you know, uh, many years uh, ago, and not only it helped me as a, you know, CEO, founder, you know, to run a better company, but also as a, as a human being. So that will be a little bit of a challenge, you know, get a little bit out of your comfort zone and, uh, and discover, don't be afraid of discovering new things. 
do you have a particular writer on stoicism passage book anywhere if someone were to get be getting started and be unfamiliar you'd be like check out yeah i, I would say go to the source and uh you know go to uh seneca the the letters in marcus aurelius uh meditation i mean you cannot get any closer <laughs> but i mean there are some uh other authors even tim ferris it's very uh, keen into stoicism in many, many other uh, good sources. Uh, but if you can get closer uh, to the root of the source, uh, the better. First principles. I love it. We're going to make sure that's all linked. And uh, a challenge I've, I've, you know, taken this in the past. I've, I've read the Marcus Aurelius and I've got Seneca's letters on my book stand, not yet uh, cracking it open, but I'll take this as a, a challenge to do that myself. I hope other people will as well. And uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to be on the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. We just went deep with Gabriela Isturas. Over out there has a fantastic day. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Gabby. If you found it useful, then please hit subscribe because we have interviews with all sorts of fantastic tech founders on the show every single week. We've had self-driving car developers. We have had software as a service entrepreneurs and everything in between and we have even more great interviews coming to you real soon including a robotics one that you'll find very fascinating thanks for listening connect with aaron on twitter and instagram at aaron watson 59